Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I am Greta Johnson, and this is Power Up, a new project from NerdApp Podcast. Life can be hectic. Between work and the bills and keeping up with Westworld, everyone has to manage intense workloads, even scientists and poets and astronauts and adventurers. So we want to know, how do successful, inspiring people set themselves up for success in an exhausting world? Last week, we talked with two wonderful comedians, Amy Schumer and Aidy Bryant. And this week, we're talking with someone in a slightly different line of work. We are talking with Megan MacArthur. She works for NASA, and in 2009, she was a mission specialist on a trip to the Hubble Space Telescope. That means that, yes, Megan is one of only about 500 humans who have traveled out of this world. T-minus 10, 9, 8... What is an average day like in space? Well, there's probably not really an average day in space. That's one of the great things about it. Um, Every day is a little bit different with new challenges. Uh, We do have an entire team of folks on the ground that plan pretty much every minute of every day in space. uh, But unexpected things do still happen. Basically, you wake up. There's a tradition on the space shuttle where your family will choose a wake-up song for you. And so on a given day, each crew member has a song that's chosen for them. So you wake up to a special song. What was your wake-up song? Um, I had a wake-up song by Jack Johnson that was from the Curious George movie called Upside Down. And then you hit the ground running. You take turns. Everybody cycles through the uh, the hygiene compartment, and then you, you start working. Um, our mission, we did five spacewalks, and so we caught up to the Hubble Space Telescope and uh, used the robotic arm to capture it and bring it into the payload bay. Five seconds. The mode switches in auto. Three, two, one, release. I'm backing away. I see you got it open. And for five days after that, we sent out two spacewalkers into the payload bay to repair the Hubble Space Telescope. And uh, I drove the robotic arm on each one of those days. So you can see you get kind of an idea that each day is pretty different. So what is the most stressful part of a space mission? I mean, there are a lot of different layers of things that are potentially very stressful, right? You're you're far away from Earth. These are a lot of potential life or death situations. Is there one thing in particular that you think is like the most intense? I think for me, the thing that was the most important or the most stressful was I didn't want to I didn't want to mess up. I didn't want to screw up my job because I knew that lots and lots of people back on Earth were counting on me to do the right thing. Um, not only the people at, at NASA that work the mission itself, but all of the scientists that use the Hubble Space Telescope. So you don't want to be the one that, you know, that breaks it. <laughs> so really, that's that's kind of what I focused all of my energy on. People um, often will ask you, were you scared? What were you scared about going into space? 
space. And we're so well trained and we rely so much on the expertise of the people on the ground that get the vehicle ready that I didn't focus any energy on being physically scared, if that makes sense. Um, If I was going to worry about something, that's what I wanted to worry about is just really making sure that I did my job well. You mentioned the meticulous planning that goes into a space mission. Is there downtime too? You know what? There does end up being some downtime, but I'll tell you the the experience that I had. So we each person has a schedule, and on shuttle, it's actually printed out uh, paper copy. Which after the first day, all of the changes, you might as well throw out that copy because they're <laughs> going to send you up new changes for every day. But basically, so I looked at my schedule, look at all the different tasks that I have to do, and the first day that we did a spacewalk, I was the robotic arm operator, and so I I did all of that activity. Our spacewalkers came back inside, and I had parked the robotic arm for overnight, and I thought, great, my my timeline shows what we call gray space, meaning no activity is scheduled. So so I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do something. Maybe I'll look out the window. And so I go downstairs to get something to drink. And the crew members that have come back inside from being, you know, out in space come through the airlock and all of their tools and equipment and everything is everywhere. And I realize, oh, I'm not scheduled to be a part of this, but I'm going to I need to chip in or we're not going to get all of this work done because you have to reconfigure the spacesuits, reconfigure all of the tools to go out the next day. So. Um, so, yeah, gray space doesn't always mean free time. But we did at the end of our mission have a couple of days where the weather was bad in Florida and so we couldn't land. And so they just kept sending you around. Right. Go around again. The weather's no good. And so um, you don't do your deorbit burn, and, and then you end up with a little bit of extra time. So um, we could look out the windows. I like to listen to music and, and watch the world go by. It's pretty awesome. Man, you are literally watching the world go by. That is so yeah. cool. <laughs> so that fits in with a lot of what I imagine spending time in space is like, which is just that you're either often kind of at zero or 10, like you've got this gray space or you are running this robotic arm and there's a lot at stake. I imagine in this environment especially, you have to know when you're wearing yourself out too much, when you're really tired. What does that look like? Like, Was that something that you experienced when you were there? Absolutely. Um, And it's not too terribly different from being on Earth and when you have a packed schedule and you have to really make sure that you're getting enough sleep, you're remembering to eat. All of those things are, are true in space as well. Things will run over time. Things will take more time than you're expecting. Things won't go exactly right. And then when you do have free time, hey, you're in space. You don't want to go to bed, right? You want to look out the windows. And so <laughs> we did have to kind of police each other a little bit to say, hey, you know what? We need to get some rest. We need to go to bed now. So you just have to look out for each other. How much are you trained in not worrying about things that are out of your control. I had a a colleague who was a uh, Marine Corps fighter pilot, and he used to use the expression, you get 10 seconds of remorse. So meaning if you make a mistake in the simulator, you throw the wrong switch, you take the wrong action, rather than let that sort of ruin the rest of the um, training for you, you have to get back in the game. You have to recover from that. You have to do the next thing. And so you can't spend time, you know, sort of replaying that in your head. Now, afterwards, you're all going to talk about what went wrong and how you could do it differently. But in the moment, you can't dwell on it. So um, so you just got to keep going. That's fascinating. I think about that a lot in live radio, but 10 seconds of dead air is terrible. Yeah, that's it's it's a long time. You're right. (laughs) My job is not life or death. So I guess that's the upside of that. (laughs) So how do you personally tell when you are just like wearing thin? I think in space, you I was in space for a relatively short period of time. And as long as I was getting enough sleep and food on time, then I was doing pretty well. But the way I notice it, I think, is just, you know, I'll get grumpy. I mean, quite honestly, if I'm not getting <laughs> enough sleep, I get grumpy. And, yep. and uh, you know, my husband or my son will notice it. And so um, so that helps kind of keep me on track. 
Yes, I can relate to that very much. Sleeping and eating are definitely two of my top three. I think exercise for me is the third one. Like it does yeah, help it's definitely a important. So then how can you tell when you're back on your A game? When I can focus on, you know, the situation that I'm in and not always being worried about the next thing I have to do, that's when I feel like, okay, I've, I've got a handle on things. Man, that is a stressed strategy that I am still working on myself. I yeah. feel like I often, <laughs> I'm not, yeah, it's a work in progress. <laughs> you know, like it's so easy on days off to think about like all the things you have to do when you get back to work. And that just increases your stress load. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned being in space for a relatively short time. You said 13 days. I wonder, did that feel like a short amount of time or actually a long amount of time? Because we were only... Slated to get 11 days, 13 days was a bonus. Um, it definitely didn't feel, I wasn't desperate to get home. It would have been great to get some more time up there. Um, of course, the, the folks that live on the International Space Station are in space for six months at a time. Um, and I haven't experienced that yet. So you get people that are there up there for six months, they're ready to stay. And you get people that are, you know, around four and a half, five months, they're ready to come home. So I wonder, I mean, you have done something that so few people on Earth have done, right? Spending time in space. You you talked about listening to music and literally watching the world go by. Do you think that changes your perspective on things like bad traffic or crappy weather? <laughs> I think the main change in my perspective or the sort of reinforcing of the perspective when you watch the world go by is you realize how fragile our planet is, how fragile the the atmosphere that protects all of us, right? Um, you see this thin little lens of atmosphere surrounding our planet, you know, protecting us from the vast blackness of space. And when you see that, you realize, you know, how important it is to, to do our part to protect our planet. That was kind of the big perspective change for me being in space. And it, it's very profound. Um, being back on Earth, you know, just like anybody else, I can get frustrated sitting in traffic. Um, <laughs> those kinds of things, I think, are just human nature, right? Um, but it is. it was an incredibly special privilege for me to get to be in space for those couple of weeks. And you do try to reflect back on it, you know, when you're having a difficult moment, thinking, OK, well, I can just picture what that looks like and, and try to take my mind off my surroundings a little bit. So have you literally done that, like sat in traffic and thought to yourself, <laughs> I've seen the earth from above. I know better than to be really annoyed by this person who's trying to merge in front of me very disrespectfully. You know, I can't say that I've used that strategy, but now I'm going to. <laughs> I'm going to try it too. I'm just, I'm going to sit in traffic and think Megan has seen the earth from above. Yeah. This will all be okay. <laughs> Just try to, you know, there's so many beautiful videos of the kinds of things that we get to see, you know, check some of those out and just put them on replay in your brain when you're sitting in traffic. My strategy for traffic is to avoid it as much as possible. Yeah, so. yeah I respect that. That's a good strategy also. Did anyone have a morning wake up song that you just like hated? <laughs> I don't. Uh, I don't remember that. No, it, I think we all just didn't, were enjoying uh, being there together. Coming up, Megan tells us about how, when she was a teenager, she got to meet Sally Ride, the first American woman to go to space. She talks about how that meeting helped her follow her dreams. I think just her acceptance of it as a realistic goal. I think that made me realize that it, it could be considered a practical goal, even though, of course, it's a tremendous long shot. 
Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. So, Megan, we love lady astronauts, and we definitely want to talk to you about what inspired you to be one. But before we do that, I want to ask you about Luciana. Luciana is the new American Girl doll, which you actually helped consult with American Girl to make. She's from Chile. She's really into math and science, and she is an aspiring astronaut. She wants to be the first person on Mars, which is just such a cool thing to have exist in the world. I think one of the things that we've learned is that it is, um, it helps for people to see a role model who represents them, right? Who looks like them, maybe who has a similar experience um, as they have, um, to, in order to imagine themselves in that same kind of environment, right? So, so seeing seeing a woman, for example, become an astronaut. Which when I was a young girl, I met uh, Sally Ride, so I knew that hey, this is something that women can do. And so, you know, as we expand that, uh, you know, the diverse pool of people that we have doing this job, because of course we actually do have uh, men and women from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, different ethnicities, representing Americans in space. Um, it's great to show that to a to a younger community, so they know hey, this is something that's achievable for you. Will you tell me about meeting Sally Ride? Oh, wow. That was so cool. So I was a high school student. I was about 16 years old. And my dad um, was in the Navy. He was a a naval officer um, at a base in California that was near Stanford University. And my dad's uh, boss knew that I wanted to be an astronaut. And he had met Sally Ride at some function. She was coming to do uh, a research uh, stint at Stanford. And so my dad's boss had met her and said, hey, would you mind, you know, meeting this young lady? And so I got probably only 20 minutes with her. She was a very busy, busy person. But, um, you know, she was great. She she sat me down in her office and we just kind of got to chat. She asked me about my goals. You know, she she encouraged me. And it was just really a, a special and unique experience for, for someone just starting to think about what they wanted to do with their life. That is so cool. Was there any specific thing she said to you or moment you had that you carried with you as you went through rigorous training? And, you know, I mean, it's not easy to be an astronaut. Was there a moment that you that helped you get there from that conversation you had with her? I think just her acceptance of it as a realistic goal, if that makes sense. Totally. That it, she it was like, oh, yeah, she sure. You can do that. Absolutely. It was it was just like, of course, that's a great, you know, it's a great thing to want to do. It wasn't discouragement. It wasn't, hey, that's going to be really hard. It just was it was much more practical. And I think that made me realize that it it could be considered a practical goal, even though, of course, it's a tremendous long shot. Can you tell me a little bit more about when you knew you wanted to be an astronaut? Um, I was living on a military base in California that shares a space with Ames Research Center. And so I would see astronauts come there and land in their T-38 jets and get out and, and come inside the simulator to, to practice landing the space shuttle. And so that was kind of my first awareness that these are real people that have a real job. You know, it's not just something that's happening on TV. And um, that was when I first, you know, and that's also around the same age when people start asking you, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And so partly seriously, 
partly not. I would say, well, I'm gonna, I want to be an astronaut, uh, and if I can't do that, I, I want to work for NASA. I want to be part of the space program. Um, but as a 16 year old, you know, you sort of have an ill-formed notion of what that really means. And so, but but by sharing it with people, with my parents, with with some of their friends, you know, it opened up these opportunities like meeting Sally Ride, where I could learn more about what the job was like, what kind of people did that job, um, what it would take, you know, education-wise to get there to, to be prepared in case I, you know, was lucky enough to, to get a chance to do it. So it sort of was an evolving process through that time. So when are we going to Mars, Megan? Huh, that's a great question. <laughs> so here's the thing about Mars. It's far away and it's hard to get to. And it's going <laughs> to take a lot of focus, determination and um, money. So we have to decide that it's a priority, that it's uh, the goal that we want to reach, and we absolutely can do it. I used to believe that we would do it in my career lifetime Um now I believe that we'll do it in my lifetime and that I'll get to watch uh, someone from this this generation that you're talking about that's being influenced by seeing all these female role models in these um, science and technology careers. I think it will be one of these young women that is the first person, I'll say first person, because to me it doesn't matter about being the first woman on Mars. Um, it'd be great to be the 50th woman on Mars because that would mean that we had a robust <laughs> program to keep going there. So so I hope that one of these young people that I have you know, gotten to, to reach out to in, in the course of the different events that I get to do, I hope one of these young people is, is uh, the first to the planet Mars and, and I hope to get to hear them talk about it one day. I suppose it might be a little safer to be the 50th woman on Mars, too, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Megan MacArthur, thank you so much for talking with us. This was really a pleasure. Absolutely, Greta. It's been my pleasure. I just love the idea of Megan going around to these classrooms and just the mere fact of her existing as a female astronaut is reinforcing the suspicions that these little girls have that this is something they can do. I, too, am very excited for the 50th woman to be on Mars. That's going to be super cool. We've also been asking how you power up, Nerd Out listeners, and lo and behold, you have responded. Hey, Nerdette, it's Allie, a.k.a. Wombles. Hi there, my name is Ellie Peterson. I'm from Kirkland, Washington, and here's what I do. My name is Andrea, and I power up by getting out and actually doing the things that I really want to do without waiting for other people to say it's okay. I love to go for long walks, and while I am walking, I try to listen to music that is 120 to 135 beats per minute. Spending time by myself, being in nature, or reading. And the reason for that is that is a walking pace, so you sort of feel like you're in a music video. Like right now I'm working on self-publishing a book and it's terrifying, but it makes me feel like I can do things because I am doing things. So that's it. Power up, everybody. Power up. You can do things because you are doing things. What do you do to keep it 100? We want you to tell us. Record how you power up on your phone and email the audio file to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. Do it! The show is produced by me, Greta Johnson, along with Justin Bull. Our coach is Trisha Bobita. She is out recharging her batteries, too, right now. What is she doing to power up? So I found, actually, that the way for me to relax 
truly is to create an experience where I play West Wing on the TV and play the Hamilton soundtrack just at the same time. So it's a surround sound of the two things I like most, and I think it really puts me in a good place. I have to say, once she asked me to do this and I told her we needed to just choose one or the other of the things, we could not do both of them at once. I'm sorry, Trisha, for not allowing you to fully relax. Our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. Our intern is Stefania Gomez. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on NPR One or listen in the WBEZ app. It is also super helpful if you leave us some stars on Apple Podcasts. Thanks to Ali Annie for the kind review. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We are at Nerd at Podcast. And we have a newsletter. I'm going to put some stuff about corgis in it this week, so you don't want to miss that. You can sign up at WBEZ.org slash Nerdette. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Power up! Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.